This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. Hey everybody, it's Charlie Harari. Hope everyone's doing well. Hope everyone had a great week. Wanted to share with you a show that I did this week. I had the chance to fill in for Buck Sexton, and I did the show there, so figured you may want to listen to that show. Hope everyone's doing well, and I hope you enjoy. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. And hey, everybody! Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Charlie Harari here, sitting in for the great Buck Sexton. An honor to be with you again. An honor to have the chance to spend the time talking on this Friday afternoon. Filling in for Buck. Great to be here. Great to be on. And we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to be talking about what's going on, of course, down south with Hurricane Matthew. We've got the, the email scandal still to talk about. The debates are coming up. Obamacare is seeing some new problems. The jobs report just came out. The tax code. We've got a lot. We've got some great guests coming on the show. We've got a lot to talk about. It's an honor to be here. Let's jump in right away and talk about what's going on down south. Hurricane Matthew is now pounding the East Coast. It's about 100 miles as of, I think, the last report out of Jacksonville. It's a Category 3 storm, which is a big deal. A lot of people have died already. 270 people um, from Haiti has died. One person from the U.S. has died. And everyone's pretty much saying, like, take this seriously. This is going to be a huge problem. It's going to stretch all the way up, I think, as far up as North Carolina. I think that's the latest reports going on. And so for anyone who's listening from anywhere near there, or anybody who's got anything related to this uh, natural disaster, be careful. Don't be dumb. I heard recently that Vanilla Ice was tweeting from his house at Palm Beach that he's going to stick it out and ride it through. So Ice Ice Baby seems to not be listening to everybody else. But, you know, you got to stop, collaborate, and listen. So everybody else, please be a little bit smarter. Be safe. You know, this is you don't want to mess with natural disasters. And our hearts and our prayers are going out for everybody who is in this path. I know the eye of the storm is it hasn't hit landfall yet, so that's good. Um, but if it does, it can get really, really scary, and it could really cause some serious damage. And I want to talk a little bit about you know what's going on in this hurricane and natural disasters in general. For those that are joining uh, me for the first time, uh, a lot of what we're going to do on this show, for those that are coming back, you know how much I love Buck's uh, listeners, it's just great to be part of the community and the uh, the team that Buck has built. So for those that have 
been on before and heard before. Thanks so much for sticking on. I hope you'll stay on for the whole show. For those that are here for the first time, just to give you a little bit, what I'm going to try to do this show, like every show that I do, is to really try to find not just what's going on, but the lessons behind it. Lots of what goes on in our lives, lots of the lessons and the uh, events that take place around us are, you know, they come and go. And for the next 36, 48 hours, everywhere you turn, you're going to hear Hurricane Matthew, and then it's going to be gone. And Hurricane Matthew will have left you forever, hopefully without doing any real damage, any more damage, I should say. But the lessons that it could bring to us could change our lives for weeks and years to come. And that's what we're going to try to do in the show. Look around at the events in the world, understand them, talk about them, and then hopefully then turn around and ask ourselves what we can learn from them. And you know how I feel about natural disasters, for those that have been with me on previous shows, because I've gone through one, especially a hurricane. I know we've got some listeners that are coming out of areas that don't have hurricanes but have tornadoes, which are in some ways scarier in some ways because of the quickness and the devastation, although hurricanes also are incredibly devastating, especially if you're in its path. And I remember my situation, my my circumstance. I was living in, I am living in New York, and New York doesn't have a lot of hurricanes. We've been, for the most part, protected from this stuff, from that stuff. We've got other issues, um, but usually they're not natural disasters. Most of our issues are made, made man-made disasters, I think. Um, but it was Hurricane Sandy. It's just a few years ago, this season in October, Hurricane Sandy came and devastated New York. I mean, devastated New York, and the surge that took place close to where I live in Long Island was so devastating. I remember the night like it was yesterday. Power went out. Uh, My family was home. I've got a bunch of little kids in the house. And the initial reports were that our particular area wasn't considered to be an area necessary evacuation. But as soon as the storm hit, I guess they got it wrong. And we got it much worse than they anticipated. But by that point, they weren't sending any emergency personnel into our area because it became too dangerous. So over the course of a few hours, it went from you can stay in your homes to no one's going to come and get you, so good luck. Hope you can swim. And I remember like it was yesterday. It was 12 o'clock at night, and the kids were sleeping. There was a blackout, and I was just sort of you know outside of my house just looking at the area, and the winds and the storms and the, and the water started filling, filling up our blocks. And I looked at my steps, and my steps had started to already have water fill them up. And I looked at where it was every few minutes, and I realized that if it would continue this way, in by morning, I wouldn't have a first floor. And so my family would be stuck. So I called 911, and I said, listen, here's my house. This is where we are. I think by morning, my kids, I, I don't know what will happen. And I said, yeah, we're looking at you, you know, on our maps and you're in an area that's too dangerous for our personnel. I said, yeah, I know, but I got kids. What am I going to do? And the lady in 911 said to me two words that'll forever ring in my mind. She said, good luck. And I was like, thanks for the luck. I mean, I appreciate that. What do I do next? And it's like, well, good luck. Hang up the phone. And I just remember what happened that night, the fear, the terror, the what will be, when will it end? How much water and then the next day, the devastation. I mean, you would drive down our area and you would see full homes sort of gutted out and put on the front lawn. People's lives, people's livelihoods, businesses just gone, gone. 
You know, insurance till it comes in, till it kicks in. Where are people going to sleep till the power comes back on? Forget spoilers, and you get looters and 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 the displacement of people and the and what it does to children and how it messes them up. I had one of my kids that couldn't even handle a storm for the next three years in fear that it would turn into a blackout, and then from a blackout we would have this again. And this is what's happening right now. This is what's going on as we speak. And for some of us that aren't in this who haven't experienced it, it pays for a moment today as we're watching it on CNN or on Fox or wherever we are and we're just looking at these images, these satellite images with you know pictures of city names and different shades of red, yellow, and blue around where it's hitting. It, we should take a minute and just realize that these are actual human beings that are going to be incredibly impacted for a long time because of this. And the feeling that I had, at least when this was done, was one of, I realized that when you live through a natural disaster, you have this weird feeling of, I hope it just goes back to normal, right? This happens to us all the time. You know, we live a life and we assume that if something happens to me, if there's a circumstance that comes my way, it'll make me happy and sad, right? And you go through life and you start asking for things and wanting things and going through your day and little things start bothering us if it gets in the way of our comfort or our desires, right? And like, you know, our, our husband does this and our wife does this or the bus is late or this happens or this happens and it starts to impact how we feel about our day, right? We're more happy, we're less happy. And then sometimes something happens that's out of our control, right? So there's no one to blame. You're not looking over at somebody and saying, hey, you should have, and we can take all of that energy of frustration and point at a human being and get all of that. We're not doing any of that. There's something bigger than us, right? A natural disaster is bigger than any one of us. It's amazing to me with all of our technology, watching the weather guys, like, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, you, you have the pictures. We don't know what's going to happen. Like, there's no, nobody know. I mean, we have a sense, but the level of this is out of everyone's control that level of loss, if you will, or insignificance that we have to greater powers around us. And sometimes that happens when someone, God forbid, gets sick. It's no one's fault, right? And something happens, and all we really want is to go back to normal. And that feeling of, why wasn't I more grateful when life was just normal, right? I bet you everybody in Florida is having that feeling right now. Florida and, 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 and Georgia and all of the Carolinas, right? That feeling right now. I wish it would just go back to last week, right? Just last week. That's all I want. Just go back to last week. Because last week, it was a regular day. It was nice out. It was sunny. And if it would just go back to normal, I would be happy. Well, what happened last week? Well, last week, I didn't have the threat of the hurricane, and what we have in our lives so many times is these moments. And if you're really wise, if you really want to capture something, and I, I learned this once from a really smart person years ago. He said, if the wise people learn, be, get experience from somebody else's experience, right? You know, it doesn't have to happen to you. You can just take a minute in your day, see it happening outside you, and then learn the lesson without having to actually feel the pain. Because what we're lacking in our lives is perspective. 
if we would have perspective as to how lucky we were on a daily basis, what would happen is we would live our lives, wake up in the morning and literally be happy with a ground that's not filled with water, right? With a sky that's not gusting at a hundred mile an hour winds or a tornado ripping through a town. And that sense of gratitude that this is, I'm living in an environment where I, I can live will literally reshape how we live our lives. And if you are not in the path of Hurricane Matthew, and all we do is watch this hurricane come and go, look at the reports, sort of ta-ta, every person that gets hurt or injured, sort of shrug our shoulders, we will have lost the opportunity to really take in an incredible lesson that's right in front of every one of us, that our lives require us to be grateful and we're grateful for the small things in life, we live better lives. We live better. It's not for God. It's not for the nature. It's not for other things that we're doing. This This is for us. We're watching this. Someone's getting hurt, and if we're protected from it, we walk out tonight, wherever you live, wherever you are, if you're not in the path of the storm and you're walking home from work, or you're driving and you can drive home to, from work or, or to your house, you take a little deep breath and say, wow, I am grateful for that opportunity. And here's why that's so important. Because of research done by a psychologist named Robert Emmons. When we come back, I'm going to give you a little bit of what he did and why just a little bit of gratitude can actually shift the course of your life. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton, and you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Experts at Web.com want to build your business a successful website for free, just like we did for these current Web.com customers. We've used and and looked at other website designers, but there's nobody better than Web.com. Web.com can build your website in as little as seven days free. Plus, we'll promote it on all the major search engines like Google, Yahoo, and Bing. If after 30 days you're happy, we'll continue to provide promotion, hosting, support, and maintenance, all for one low monthly fee. If not, cancel and pay nothing. If you're in business today and you don't have a web presence, you won't be taken seriously. Call right now and you'll also get a free .com or .net domain name for your new website powered by VeriSign, the world's leading domain name provider. Call 800-490-1099 or go to web.com slash radio. That's 800-490-1099. No upfront charge for site build, after which ongoing fees apply. Rights to site are relinquished when canceled. Domain included during active service, after which fees apply. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Hey everybody, Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton. Welcome back to the show talking about Hurricane Matthew and the need for all of us to understand the power that it can have for our lives Getting ourselves a little bit of gratitude. I want to give a shout out. I'm actually, right now, I'm going to be live tweeting throughout the show. Those that are, that are tuning in right now, you can tweet me at, at Charlie Harari. Um, so I'll be responding to tweets. I want to give a shout out to Kira, who said some nice words. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kira. So we'll be tweeting here right now. You can also listen to the show on the archives. It's great to be back and sitting in for the great Buck Sex and talking about Hurricane Matthew. 
and the power of gratitude. So there's this psychologist I want to talk to you about called Robert. His name is Robert Emmons. And here's what he did. You know, sometimes in life when you hear something, like, even when I'm saying this right now, I'm sure some of you are going, okay, okay, I've heard it before. You know what I'm saying? Like, all right, okay, fine. I get it. Like, I have to be grateful. I'm grateful. Yes, I can walk on the street. And as a result, I'm not going to get wiped out by a hurricane. Let's get back to real life. Right? And what happens is, is that gratitude is one of those few emotions that we take for granted because we assume it's like, okay, think positively, like, okay. So Robert Emmons is a psychologist, and what he did was he went out for a decade, literally for a decade, and started to study people that felt more gratitude to see if this whole gratitude thing is just a nice idea or if it actually has an implication for your physical and emotional life. And here's what he did. He had people do gratitude journals, right? So basically he went to people and said, listen, I want you to keep a gratitude journal, which means that every day or whatever it is, just for a few weeks, not for life, right? For three weeks, for a month, I want you to just write down things that you're grateful for every single night, okay? Can you imagine someone coming to you and saying, listen, here's a book, just for three weeks or a month, I want you every night to just go at the end of the day and write down what you're grateful for. Okay? He did it for over a thousand people. This is a bunch of guys in his laboratory. And he tested people from ages nine, I'm sorry, eight to eighty. So it's a wide group of people and all they had to do, right? It wasn't like they had to turn around and like, you know, do these long blessings or prayers or give speeches on it or meditate. Just write down things that you're grateful for. Just show a drop of gratitude. And here's what he found. Okay? The people that experienced this level of gratitude, simple, basic gratitude, reported a host of benefits that came to them. Listen to that. I'm going to read you the list. It's going to blow you away. They found that these people were physically had stronger immune systems. Their immune systems got stronger. They were less bothered by aches and pains. They lowered their blood pressure. They exercised more, right? They just naturally were able to exercise more. They slept longer and slept better. You ready for this? They had higher positive emotions. They were more alive, alert, and awake. They felt more joy, optimism. They felt more interested in helping. They felt more interested in forgiving. They felt more outgoing, and they felt less lonely. Can you believe that? Like, you can't get a pill for this. If this was like a series of pills, this would be the greatest pill ever. And all these people did to get all of these benefits, or at least each person had whatever benefits they had, was they every day experienced a drop of gratitude why so here's some of his research and you know i i you know i actually i'll tweet some of this stuff if you want um but you just google him robert emmons why gratitude is good it's incredible this stuff and if you like if you're a research type you just this stuff is good it'll blow you out of the water how something so simple is so powerful so, so here's why you see what makes gratitude so incredible is that it is a double emotion, right? It is. It almost has a, one emotion has a double effect. What do I mean? Usually when you feel an emotion, you feel the emotion, right? You feel happy, you feel sad, you feel joy, you feel pain, whatever it is. But gratitude is one of those few emotions that does two things at the exact same time. One, it makes you feel better, right? So there's a sense of personal benefit. You, when you, when you imagine feeling grateful for something, you feel better. You just feel more positive. But two, it's a relationship-strengthening emotion. Gratitude connects you to something. That's what gratitude does. 
it connects you. You can't be grateful for to nobody. So at the exact time, you are feeling better and connecting to something, connecting to God, connecting to uh, your parents, connecting to your spouse, connecting to something that, that you feel grateful for. And when you feel better and you connect something, what happens is your mind can't handle more than one emotion, right? If I tell you right now, be sad and be happy, you just couldn't do it. Your brain can only do one thing really at a time. When you bring gratitude into your life, what happens is the emotion is so overwhelming that it basically hijacks you and sends all the positivity of what a positive emotion would do into your life. And so a lot of the issues that we have, physical issues, stress, health, outlook, depression, success, all of that stuff really is perspective. And we've been talking about this in the show forever. And once you increase your gratitude, you're almost forcing your brain to think of nothing but that, connecting yourself to people around you and to yourself. You see how powerful that is? That's the power of gratitude. When you look at people that have achieved great things in life, you'll find that if, you've, if they haven't stole it or just inherited it, if they've actually earned it properly, almost all of them, and just think to yourself, people that you respect the most have this natural tendency to be grateful. And if you're raising kids, there's very little you can do to give them a good life, but give them this, this idea. And that's what we're talking about. And that's the idea. So for those that are looking around today and saying to yourself, hey, there's a hurricane going on, my suggestion would be feel for them. Be grateful that you're out of it. When we come back, we're going to be talking about what's going on around us, especially Sunday night, the debates. This is all coming up when we come back. You're listening to Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. On the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. And welcome back. Charlie Harari sitting in for Buck Sexton. Welcome back to the show. Speaking about Hurricane Matthew and being a little grateful, I want to shout out to Fish uh, on Twitter who wrote something positive. Energy reverberates back. Karma is real. Mind your aura. Your mind is powerful. Absolutely right, Fish. I totally agree. Thanks so much for that tweet. You know, a lot of times in life, you look around, you see some people standing on a stage, and you realize that you think, at least, that those are the people that know everything. But in truth... Lots of the real stuff goes on with people that are operating either behind the scenes or in areas that may not get some of the uh, spotlight as others. And one of the things we've talked on the show before is that everyone's focused just on this political uh, presidential race and they're forgetting that the Republican Party is also represented, if not maybe more so, through Congress. And one of the people that are the most active that I know that are out on the street throughout this entire campaign season really operating to keep the Republican majority in Senate is a political operative uh, friend of mine, a really great guy, Arya Lightstone, who is joining us. Arya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Charlie. Nice to have, nice to speak with you. Great to be, great to have you back again. I know that you have been, you have been in every nook and cranny of this election. I know that you've been working with various candidates on the presidential side, and now you're active both in terms of the Senate and in the House. 
and wanted to get your take on a few things as we're sort of gearing up for the election season. As you know, from your perspective, sort of seeing the impact that this election is having on the larger political sphere, what are you anticipating coming, that's going to be going down on the debates this weekend? What are you looking for? What, what should we be paying attention to? Now, Charlie, that's an excellent question. And I am torn in terms of how to evaluate this because from my perspective, these are the two best-known candidates in electoral history. I don't know what can be revealed at a debate that's not already known, meaning if it can Trump present himself more presidentially for 90 minutes, possibly? Can Hillary answer questions less evasively for 90 minutes, possibly? Do I think either of those things are going to happen to skew out our entire, it's not 18 months of history with either of these candidates. It's going on three, four decades. Um, so in some ways, I think the debate counts more than ever before. And in some ways, I think the debate is almost irrelevant. Do, do you find that, I mean, after these debates, I find like it's a game of who won. And part of it is just sort of media perception of who won. And part of it is sort of finding a moment where you can just sort of ding somebody in public when everybody knows the stories anyways. It, will this impact the elections? If Donald Trump doesn't pull this off, will this change his potential for actually winning? My, my gut is no. My gut is that, yes, if he were to put in a dominating performance in a debate, do I think that could change the narrative in these precious four weeks where the narrative, I think, does matter? I think that is possible. I don't think it's likely because, again, I'm not positive what he could say or he could reveal or she could do or she could reveal that is going to change the hearts and minds of people who know both of these people. But I do think that there will be a macro event. And the way that Hillary or Donald respond to a macro event can and will change uh, the, you know, sort of, if you will, the trajectory of this election. What, what kind of macro events? You're talking about a another email leak? You know, what's going on with her email scandals right now? Is there something else that we can be anticipating that you think is going to happen to now in the elections? Yeah, if, if somebody looks behind the scenes, the presidential election is going to be won, you know, in no more than 20 counties across the U.S. You know, Jefferson County in, in Colorado, a couple counties in in Ohio, Nevada, Virginia, etc. It's, it's not the swing states. It's counties within the swing states. And this is where there's been frustration by the, if you will, the, the, I'll use the establishment. Every word's a dirty word in this cycle. But the, the, the pillars of, of the Republican community who have worked hard to build the nuts and bolts of get out the vote and things that in theory have mattered in the past. Um, and, and there have been organizations that have done an excellent job with that, I'll tell you as an interesting aside, it will be the ground games of the senators in Nevada and in Ohio and in New Hampshire and in Pennsylvania that will bring Trump across the finish line if he does win those states, um, as opposed to the opposite, which normally occurs. That doesn't mean by any stretch of the imagination that he will or will not win those states solely because of those people, but when it gets down to the ground game matters, a thousand votes here, two thousand votes here, absentee ballots, all of those things that matter. Uh, Trump's campaign has not uh, invested in that particular cycle. So if it comes down to a ground game, it's really Republican senators against Hillary Clinton, which is an interesting uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, paradigm 
if it comes to a macro event, which is what you, you spoke to beforehand, I don't know whether it's emails, God forbid, a terrorist attack. Um, it could be a hurricane or some other natural disaster closer in time uh, to the election, and the reaction there will give both of the presidential candidates an opportunity to be judged based upon their reactions. And I think that will tell far more than a debate will. That's interesting. It's interesting because we look at the debates and we turn them like into the Super Bowl. You know what I'm saying? Like the debates mm-hmm. are like we think going to determine who's going to get the ring. But in fact, you see, I, I would say complete otherwise. I mean, if you look through the Republican sort of the nominational process and all the debates where Donald Trump was getting beaten up by uh, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and somehow it just never touched his poll numbers. And, you know, to your point about how which is a, which is a great point that I don't think I've ever thought about, which is how Republican senators and Republican, the, 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 the smaller Republican races that are taking place in these counties and in these states across the country will bring people to vote down a ticket. So if that's the case, then, if Donald Trump just avoids doing something that is incredibly dumb or embarrassing at these debates, won't that just be enough for him to be able to say, listen, ultimately, should there not be a macro event, we're going down the line, you're in these counties, the Republican senator seems to be stronger in these, in, in these particular counties. If you just don't give that person something to not vote for Donald Trump for, if it just stays a tie, right? And it's incredible just how much people don't like both of them. So it's hard to like not like somebody more because I don't like anybody. So just the questions of how much less do I like you after a debate? Because that's what debates are. They're just fighting with each other to, to tear each other down. So if he just avoids on Sunday night and continues to do it for one more time, anything incredibly embarrassing and just keeps sparring at Hillary, won't that just give him enough so if the Republicans do come in there and win these counties, it'll be enough to just sort of have them, the, the people just vote the ballot? It's difficult to, to analyze, would that be enough? My, my immediate response to you would be, had he adopted that approach in mid-May when he won Indiana, became the presumptive nominee, I do believe that the macro factors at play there were enough that Hillary is... is is incredibly unpopular, um, second most unprop- unpopular uh, uh, major party nominee in, in history, unfortunately, only only to the fellow running uh, against her. What and an incredible had, stat, no? Right, <laughs> and had had he run a very conservative campaign and, and not given any ammunition to dislike him, but instead had focused on, look, you, it's a binary choice. Do you want four more years of the same or worse, or do you want to try something different? And and I believe that the country would choose trying something different. Here you have something else that's at play. Here it's not try something different or stick with the same. It's try something different, and what the Democrats have tried to put into the voters' uh, thought pattern is something different might be catastrophic. And, And I don't know if he plays it safe this last month, if that would be enough to undo the potential for catastrophe that they've done a good job of painting for him in the last uh, four or five months. So, meaning, had he made that pivot in May, I think he'd be up seven, eight, nine points, and that's probably two months, five, six, seven points uh, in the polls now. I don't know whether the hole is too large for him to climb out without a positive event as opposed to merely avoiding the mistake.
And if you think, I mean, what what to expect Sunday night before we end this segment? What do we expect Sunday night? You think he's prepped? You think he's ready to go? Or you think he's going to get caught flat-footed a little bit like he did on that first debate? Yeah, it's a great question whether he got caught flat-footed. Uh, you know, I, I, I am done um, underestimating him and his powers in terms of what he believes the people want. Um, you, me, and, and a, a group of us in pundits, which probably isn't where either of us want to be, um, and the Twitterverse in general has strong feelings about this. I'm not positive that it resonates with the uh, people who are getting out to vote in Ohio and Virginia and North Carolina and Colorado. He may have been exactly who the the voter is looking for, and, and there he's certainly made the case for change. He says, do you want to try 30-year-old policies that haven't worked and why Hillary thinks she's going to start instituting these new ideas today, which aren't new when she's had an opportunity to institute them? I think that resonates with somebody who's been struggling for, uh, it's, not a, it's not eight years anymore, it's a decade. It's, it's even more than a decade. And, and why not take that risk uh, if you were that voter? And, and from that perspective, maybe he did an excellent job. It just doesn't, quote-unquote, appeal to maybe you or to me. And I think we need to stop getting caught up in in, in that judgment. That's interesting. And you're right. I think that's exactly right. I think we come at it from a certain perspective with certain expectations. But to your point, unless the we is in the counties that are going to actually change this election, it really doesn't matter. And the rest of us is just fun for us to talk about or watch. It's like watching sports just with words and people that are trying to take over a country. And um, actual ramifications. Right, exactly, which is more scary. Ari, thanks so much for joining us. As always, continue your great work in trying to help those people that deserve to be in Congress, be in Congress, and we look forward to catching up another time. Charlie, I really appreciate it. If I can just, I know we're up against probably a break, just encourage your voters, if anybody's despondent out there, look up and down the ticket and and focus and, and realize that your vote for Congress counts a thousand times more than your vote does for president. So, Get out there and vote. It, it really does make a major difference. Nobody should be staying home this cycle. That's a, that's a great point, and um, definitely one that's worth making again and again and again. We get caught up a little bit too much in the glitz and the glamour of the presidential elections and forget, to your point, that it's Congress that really represents us even more so in many ways than, than, than the, the White House. And as we see in what's going on even now in our White House, if it wasn't for Congress, forget about it. So... Um, you're absolutely right, and I encourage everyone who's paying attention, even no matter, even if you feel your county doesn't matter, to vote either way. Ari, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you, Charlie. That was Ari Lightstone, um, individual who's really worked really hard um, over the past few months in terms of getting the right people elected. I think he's an incredible individual, and he's right. I think each and every one of us needs to sort of take a step back, recognize in some ways what is the limitations of this debate, um, enjoy it for what it is, I guess, if you can use the word enjoy, um, but also appreciate that there's a lot going on, at least off the t- off the, the presidential ticket, that may impact the presidential race in the long run. When we come back, we're going to wrap this up. This is uh, Charlie Rye filling in for Buck Sexton, and you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. Man, 
everybody. Welcome back to the show. Charlie Rower here filling in for Buck Sex and talking about the debates. You know, we just had Ari Lightstone on, who is a political operative who has been spending a lot of time trying to get Republican senators elected. Interesting insights onto the debate. What well, he said something interesting that I, I kind of feel we got to sort of, I got to think about, which is the idea that we all sort of know, but hearing him say it, I thought sort of brought back some of these ideas for me, which is what you say really only matters if the person listening cares to hear it, right? Like if you're raising kids and you can have any conversation you want, but if they're not on that pace, they're on, on that page with you, if you've got a teenager in the house and you're lecturing her about, you know, when she's an adult and she's like, what are you talking about? I kept to get through 16, right? And what happens in some of these debates is that we all look at it from like our own perspective with whatever we, our agenda is. We come in with who we hate, who we love, how how high level we want them to be, what she he, he or she could have said. And it's fun to watch debates, right? And we, we, we obsess over them. I think that, that the last debate got as many people as the Super Bowl, which means it's a sporting event, right? That's why the Super Bowl gets so much, because it's a sporting event. And when there's sporting events, people die. Or not, they don't die. At least people get hit, right? There's winners and losers, you know? And so we just look at debates as like, you know, a, a sporting events for people that are trying to become president it's like a reality tv show it's that's just sort of how it feels doesn't it and in watching the debates and we should watch the debates and care a lot and i think but i think the point is when you're watching the debates to sort of take a step back and go okay well this is how i'm seeing it but how is someone someone else seeing it and what about the people who live in this state or that state like when he says this or she does this does that really matter and i think just seeing the debates in that perspective really changes the power of them they go from being like the most important thing ever to being something that may have an impact, but may actually not have an impact. Because in this particular area, the people that are watching that care, they didn't hit this topic or nothing really changed in how they saw um, the candidates up there. And I think it's important just in general in life to think about how when we talk to people, it's not a question of what we want to say. It's a question of what they want to hear. And if we can't sort of align with that, we can look amazing but we're not getting the message across. And so it's interesting to see what will happen on Sunday night and just how Donald Trump performs. I, I just think he was I think he was soft list him. I think he let a lot of balls hang around the hoop and he could have dunked him and, and totally took taken it to her. But you know, let's see how he does, see if he if he preps. When we come back, we're gonna talk to Jake Novak. Uh, Jake Novak is a senior uh, correspondent for CNBC. He's, we're going to be talking to him about Obamacare and the jobs report that just came out and why the jobs report is more important than we think. This is all coming up when we come back. You're listening to Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. 
And welcome back to the show. Charlie Harari here filling in for Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Hour uh, 2 is coming up right now. We've got an incredible hour for you talking about what's going on in the world today. And lots of times we seem sometimes focused on the events around us. And we miss some really big things that don't make it to the mainstream media. And that's why I have my good friend Jake Novak on the phone. Jake is a senior columnist on CNBC.com. He's always on my shows. If you've heard me before, you know that I always find a way to bring him on. There's a few people that are able to sort of really get and understand the various disciplines of politics and business and psychology and just people and how people think the way Jake Novak does. Jake, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you for all those kind words. It's my pleasure. You earn them and deserve them. I want to talk to you about something that's a little bit, I guess, off the political sphere a little bit, but it's super important. I know we've, we've spoken about this before. Jobs numbers just came out, um, and they were a little you know, more depressing or whatever. They just weren't as exciting as we had hoped. What impact do you think these job numbers, and just give us a little bit of a background if you can, as to just how important this data is in September and what that's going to mean for our candidates? Well, this is the last jobs report that's really going to be able to affect the election. We'll get one before the uh, – we had another one before the November 8th election day, but that will ha- happen so close to election day that it really won't make much of a difference for people who already made their minds already. So this was the last one. And, you know, when it comes to the economy, for most American people who are not big-time business people or major investors, the jobs number is so important because that's what we all can relate to, whether you have a job or you don't. And, you know, it was a disappointing number. It wasn't majorly disappointing. It came in at 156,000 net new jobs created in September, but the markets and the experts were expecting 175,000. And the last two months were adjusted to a point where basically we had more losses in jobs overall uh, in those two months than we expected, or or they didn't gain as much as we had expected. So... It's, it's, when you think about the importance of it, not only is it just something that everyone relates to, but I think it really fits the Trump narrative. The Trump narrative all along has been like, yeah, there's been recovery. We're not losing jobs anymore. Obviously, the bleeding has stopped, but this has not been a strong enough recovery. And of course, any historian will tell you this has been the weakest recovery since World War II. And this is what has allowed Trump to do what no other politician has ever been able to do in a presidential election in an economy that's growing, even if it's growing weekly. He's been able to play that middle and, and make it very, very clear that like, yeah, some people are doing well in this economy. Some people aren't. There are a lot of presidential candidates who have failed at making that that message and, and connecting with that message of the voters. Michael Dukakis was probably the best one who kind of best example of that. Like he tried to show that the Reagan years weren't great for everyone and, and he lost, you know, pretty, pretty dramatically. Right. Trump has been successful so far saying, hey, look, we're getting jobs reports like this. Sure, sure, those people who got jobs, maybe they're doing great, but you know, not enough people did. And he's doing well with that. You know what's amazing is watching President Obama, I know I think he just released an op-ed, I think it was in The Atlantic or The Economist, where he basically was trying to defend himself and saying, you know, I avoided the second greatest depression and the economy is better than it is. But I don't think that's resonating. And when you're seeing these jobs numbers, I think people are saying we're not any better than we were, or at least they don't appreciate, so to speak, the where we are right now. And that's, I think, hurting people in terms of their pockets and then ultimately their votes. Yeah, and you know that's what's disappointing about um, the, the, you know this president. He has just he doesn't. I don't think he understands 
where his appeal is and where it isn't. You know, I think he's kind of been coddled his whole life and doesn't really yeah. understand where he's been praiseworthy and not been praiseworthy. And I, and I said this to you before. I give him this. This is where he deserves some credit. When you hear what's, what, what people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders say about our economy and our capitalist system, I give Barack Obama credit for the last eight years for not going down that road, for talking up the economy, which is a big job of the president. It just happens. It just is, whether it's always true or not. It just is a very important job. He did a good job of that. And yet he writes these kinds of editorials where you would think, oh, boy, his policies were all great. It wasn't his policies. It was the, you know, the American ingenuity and what Americans do, what, you know, no, no matter what goes on in the White House. That's what's helped the economy recover to whatever extent it has recovered. But he doesn't really get that. And I, and I get, listen, he can't write an editorial saying, hey, look, I cheerleaded the economy for eight years and pat himself on the back for that. But what really disturbs me is I don't think he even understands that none of his policies did any good for this economy. He doesn't even get that. And he's going to leave office thinking he, he was very successful. And that's too bad because a lot of people are going to believe it, too. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I think we don't fully appreciate, and I think you've been talking about this a lot, and it's important for all of us that are, that are watching this election and trying to understand the underlying sort of principles that's what's driving the popularity of Donald Trump. I think it comes down, and I think we've spoken about this before, just to employment, to dollars, right? And I saw that you had sent around these articles about how working white class men in America are making less than they did in 96, which is incredible. And 70% of young adults in America, I mean, live with their parents. So we're looking at a a generation that's not going to do better than their parents. Now, are they, is this this where it's coming from, right? Are they sitting back and saying, listen, I don't know, isn't this just Brexit? Isn't this just Brexit with Donald Trump's name? And then saying, I don't know what he's going to do. But when you get numbers like employment ticking, unemployment ticking up, Jobs reports coming underneath, people underemployed, people living at home, people making less than they did. I don't care what's going on outside that. They just it's almost like I don't care what's happening, but way, the way we're working is just not working. So I'll just take the the the, 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 the wild card because that's better than status quo. Yeah, no, I, that's exactly right. And I have a column coming about this white working class male problem. And this is not even adjusted for inflation, Charlie. They're making $4,000 less than they were 20 years ago. Oh and it sounds stunning and impossible, but it makes sense when you realize they've lost good manufacturing jobs first, and those were higher paying jobs. Then they lost the good service jobs, you know, the really good hospitality, restaurant, um, business to business kind of service jobs. They've lost those. And now they're competing with immigrants and illegal immigrants for, uh, you know, with almost no floor in the wages. The wages can keep going down and down and down. So it makes sense there. And anyone who would have told you a couple of years ago, oh, a Republican candidate is going to come out completely ignoring women voters and Latino voters and really go after that white male vote, we would have laughed and said, oh, that can't work. Well, you know, it's worked so far and to the point where he's got a shot at winning this thing. And that is a huge part of it. And when you see a jobs report like this, like why I said at the beginning, this, this is perfect for Trump's narrative. It's sure we've, we've had some job increases, but if you live in Ohio or in Scranton, Pennsylvania or places like that, you haven't seen any improvement. You haven't seen, in fact, you've seen your, your income literally go down uh, over the last few years. And when you compare yourself to what maybe your dad was making and the kind of life he lived, you know, that's, that's even worse. And then you mentioned the last thing there about, and then you have parents who are in their 50s and 60s who felt like no matter how thing, bad things got in America, when you finished high school, you moved out and you moved out for good. They're seeing their kids still live with them. And when they hear Make America Great Again, that's what they're thinking of. They're not thinking of going back to an old America that was mean or, or, or harsh or not inclusive. They're thinking about a time in America that they remember when, hey, when you finished high school, you left home. And that right, isn't happening right, right. anymore. There was a job for you out there. Someone was thinking about you and protecting you. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's – and I, I don't know why Hillary has not been able to pivot to the message. I think that she's caught 
between how she really thinks and how Bernie Sanders supporters think. And she's sort of in this weird sort of not here, not there place. And so her economic message just doesn't seem to be resonating with anybody. That's exactly right. And there's an added uh, part of this. There's an added ingredient to this. Hillary Clinton doesn't do the empathy thing very well. Her husband, (laughs) Bill Clinton, was the best at it. And I have a column coming out later today about how in a town hall debate in 1992, Bill Clinton pulled the best town hall debate maneuver in the history of town hall debates. And it's a very simple maneuver. You know, the thing that you want to do in a town hall debate is connect with that average voter asking you that question, that real live body right in front of you. There's one way to do it, and there's the best way to do it. Let them talk more. You know, if you just use their question to launch into some talking point, or maybe you say three words of compassion to them, and then you launch into your talking point, you've missed an opportunity. And what Bill Clinton did in a famous question that was asked to all the candidates about how the debt was affecting them, he didn't just launch into his talking point. He, before he started, he said, oh, has this something that's affected you? Is something that you and your friends see? I mean, he, he, was, he was being solicitous of her. I don't see Hillary Clinton being able to do that. I don't know if Donald Trump can do it either, but she cannot do that. She doesn't come from that kind of a place. She is a cloistered type of person. She, you know, look, I, I, I don't mean to say, mean as, as nasty, sound as nasty as it is, but she is an elitist. This is someone who went to the best, the best colleges, has always been kind of a power broker or close to power brokers. And she doesn't do the empathy thing very well. Bill Clinton, who grew up very, very poor and had, you know, humble beginnings, it's obvious that he knew how to do this. And we'll see if Donald Trump can do it. I don't think Hillary's going to be able to pull it off. But this is part of your answer. This is part of the answer. This is why she can't connect with people on economic policy and people who are suffering economically, because she doesn't understand that she can't really empathize. And she's been in government her whole life. It's very, very difficult for her to do that. Yeah. And she's caught. And I think I think she's spent so much time sort of talking, talking points. I remember when I saw her years ago when she was a senator and I went with a delegation of people from New York, talk about whatever. And she came in and she was so on like she knew like that the the organization and and the founders and the board and I'm looking at her going wow she's incredible then I'm going wow she's a robot like she's been doing talking points and scripts for so many years that I think it's just just she just she just doesn't want to take a chance at coming off that script and it's hurting her now and I think this is the point right she's right. sitting with her people and saying okay what should I say that's going to get the Bernie people to like me enough. Yep. Um, and I lost the, 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 the Trump guys anyways. Okay, I'll say these five things, but no one's buying it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it, this is, again, this is, a very, this is why this debate is going to be such a, could be a potential trap for her. And this is the column I have out right now on CNBC.com. There's kryptonite in this debate for both Trump and Hillary. And Hillary's tri- the kryptonite is sounding too polished, sounding too rehearsed. You know, that's the way her entire campaign has been. And it's been in contrast to Trump, who kind of flies off the handle and he doesn't seem disciplined. And sometimes that helps him and sometimes that hurts him. Um, but she so far has pretty much gotten away with that. But in a town hall debate, if she just sounds so rehearsed and has all the little names on her list and, and just kind of goes on like the robot that she can sometimes be, this town hall debate could be real, real problem for her. She's got to sound like she's a normal human being. And like I said, Charlie, I don't know if she can pull it off. It's not something you can right. learn overnight. You either no, have right. the charm or you don't. Right, exactly. And either you are or you're not. And she, I don't think she'll let herself be the real her with, you know, you know, 35 days left but let's let's sort of pivot here because on this point of having to get caught between two positions and sort of take the sort of what is the pundits you know decision versus what you believe in i think an area that is now creeping up in an an amazing way is obamacare right you see hillary caught she had praised it she's got her husband i can't believe bill i just can't believe where we are right now in the election that Bill Clinton goes on record and says it's one of the craziest things he's ever seen. What is going on with Obamacare? How come Bill's 
distancing himself. I know that it's cratering right now. Where where does this all end up? Well, I'm sure your your readers, well, your viewers and listeners, <laughs> I'm getting it all wrong. I'm sure your listeners will remember this. Remember when Obamacare was first passed, and one of the first things we all noticed is that the real cost and the real pain was going to kick in right after Obama left office. Remember we all saw that? 2017, end of 2016? That's what's happening. Uh, Hillary Clinton knows that even if she does win this election, even before she takes the oath of office, some of the real sticker shock that's been put off because for Obama's benefit uh, from Obamacare is going to start to hit. She has got to start laying the groundwork in case she wins, for some kind of separation between her and the, and the policy. She can't do it so much on the campaign trail because she's really relying on Obama and Obama's voters to come out in big numbers. If they don't come out in big numbers for her, she's toast. She really needs that. She's got to be very, very careful. But Bill Clinton at another event can say something bad about Obamacare, and then a few months down the road, they'll be able to have some kind of plausible deniability that, oh, we never really like this. Plan in the I person. love it. That's what this is all about, Charlie. This is going to be. There's going to be some major sticker shock. Forget about the plan imploding or not imploding. Even if it doesn't implode and, and they need to, and they don't have to replace it, people are going to start getting in the mail sticker shock type new premium bills, and they are going to blame Hillary Clinton. I mean, there are two reasons why Hillary Clinton could take the oath of office if she wins as the most hamstrung president even from day one. One is she has terrible unfavorables. We already know she's up around 60 percent. People don't like her, which is incredible for a presidential candidate at this stage. And second is this Obamacare thing, which is going to be big news in the, in the weeks leading up to the inauguration. Again, if she wins, if Trump wins, then it'll be a great it'll be great momentum for his agenda. I mean, it'll be a fantastic launching point for him. But for for Hillary, it's all bad news. Yeah, and, and she's going to get caught with this. And I just can't believe that we're at a place right now where it is literally cratering in his legacy, the president's legacy. The first thing that he went turning to Obamacare, even in some ways, without fully addressing the economic issues of the of the latest recession. And now we're at the end of his candidacy, his presidency, I should say, and we're watching this literally crater uh, in front of our faces, making it more expensive, less people signing up. And I, I just think this is it's it's sad to see what's going on. And it's it's incredible to watch how the Clintons are going to sort of have to, like you said, juggle through it in case they win. They're going to have to now pay for it, which is, I think, going to be the legacy of Barack Obama paying for all the fun that he had. Oh, yeah. I mean, you get to that situation where. A lot of presidents have had that problem. You know, I mean, there were there was. It, it's happened where there's been issues that have gone on. Uh, I mean, you go way back in history, like somebody like James Buchanan. He didn't create slavery in the South, but that poor schmo got pre- elected four years before you know the the Civil War started. I mean, there was just no way he was going to be able to get us out of that one. Uh, this is going to be rough for her. I mean, it's going to be if she wins. Now, again, if Trump wins, it'll be like Obama in two thousand in, 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 in you know, early two thousand nine. No matter how bad things get, all that will do will be uh, more wait for the confirmation bias for everyone who voted for him and feel like, oh, well, this is why we voted for him. Like, you know, we, we've got to give him a chance to fix this problem. Right. So, yeah, she has a lot of uh, just uphill headwind in her face if she wins. And they've got to start laying the groundwork, especially on Obamacare, because that's going to be the one that hits everybody in, you know, in, in, in the mail. They're going to see this, this sticker shock thing. There's no avoiding it. And uh, she's going to take the blame for it. Jake, it's always great to have you on. Thanks so much for your opinions. You could check out uh, Jake always on CNBC. You can tweet him at Jake, Jake NY. Um, incredible columns. Look him up. Subscribe to his stuff. Watch him. Uh, Jake, thanks again for being on the show. Always my pleasure. Thanks, Charlie. And we'll be right back. We'll wrap up this idea. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is Charlie Rye filling in for Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network.
is the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome back to the show. Charlie Ari here filling in for Buck Sexton. Hope everyone's doing well. Happy Friday to everybody. Hope everyone down in the southern coast of America, Florida and Georgia and the Carolinas are safe and secure. Talking about the debates, talking about Hillary Clinton, the jobs, and the impact of the economy on the elections. That's something that I think we take for granted a little bit too much. That at the end of the day, it all comes back to our pocketbooks. It does. It all comes back to politics are nice and theories are great and foreign policy is important. And all this stuff about what we think about makes sense. But at the end of the day, if you can't pay your bills or your kids don't have the future that you had, you're going to look at the candidate and say, who's going to give my kids more of that future? And at this point, it's it's looking like it's Donald Trump, at least for lots of people around this country, mostly because Hillary just hasn't been able to find her ground. But what I think is really going on, something that we should be thinking about if you're looking five, ten years down the road, especially if you find yourself on the conservative side, on the Republican side, is what is the impact of this election on the future of the key, of the conservative movement? Is it better if you're a, a if you're a Republican, if you're a conservative? Are you looking for Donald Trump? Is that better, so to speak, for the party? I know someone like Paul Ryan may say yes. Is it better for the party that a Donald Trump wins? Supreme Court nominees and all the, the stuff that he could be doing now, getting rid of Obamacare, etc. Or is it better if Hillary Clinton wins? And I think the more we think about it, if Hillary Clinton does win, she's putting herself in an arguably the worst potential position that any president has ever put themselves in. And I wonder if her victory, should she win, would only catapult the Republican Party even further. And why is that? And we're going to talk about this when we get back. We're going to talk a little bit about what is the psychology, what are the studies out there that can almost predict why people are acting the way they act against Hillary Clinton? What is it? about Hillary Clinton that has drove drove people insane to the point in which we have t-shirts that people are using and wearing Hillary for prison. I mean, the level of of unfavorability that Hillary Clinton has in the world without while still playing in the game of political correct and talking. I get Donald Trump sort of goes off the handle sometimes. We're talking about somebody who is so scripted, who is so protected, who is so sort of uh, focused on becoming president. And with all of that is so disliked. How come? So there's real reasons. How come? It's not just because if you dislike Hillary, I got one tweet for someone that, 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 that said, you know, no Hillary. If you dislike Hillary and you want to understand why people dislike Hillary, I think this can shed this study can shed a little bit of light. We're going to get to it when we come back and talk and talk about why Hillary Clinton is playing the short game. She may win, but if she does the way she's playing it right now, she's only setting herself up for failure. This is all coming when we come back. You're listening to Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Charlie Rowe filling in for Buck Sexton. Hope everyone's doing well. Happy Friday. Talking about Hillary Clinton and how I think she's playing herself up for failure. I honestly think the Hillary the, the Clinton campaign is preparing themselves and playing for a short win, but in the process, they're setting themselves up for a huge loss. And what do I mean? So we're getting, this is going to continue to the end of the election, until the elections for sure, this consistent drip of Hillary Clinton email saga, right? Latest that came out, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal today. I think I read it this morning. It's been so many hours since morning. Um, I think I read it this morning that there are new emails that show that top Obama administrative officials were actually working with Hillary Clinton's campaign as early as 2015 to deal with the fallout from the email scandal and working with John Kerry and a CBS News segment to sort of avoid any of the issues. And that just came out and just it just goes to this whole world of this in, inner group of people that have power that are trying to avoid truth and avoid any level of responsibility for the regular people, for us, for me and for you. Why should they... Why should she be treated fairly when she has all of her contacts as a part of the Obama administration and they sort of share the same uh, desires in people, right? And then another scandal just came out just so recently how uh, there was about, you know, hundreds of pages from an FBI witness interviews from the Hillary Clinton email investigation that um, she had, they had taken in these law firms and Recently, as these boxes were being delivered, they were missing two banker boxes. Banker boxes are these big boxes. So two boxes filled of redacted witness interviews from the FBI seem to have gone missing. So, so the State Department is going crazy. And, I mean, the State Department's part of it. So the idea that every day there is another news brief, right, another sort of breaking news, another story in a journal that's trying to report the news fairly, that Hillary Clinton continues to be plagued by this lack of transparency, what it's doing, and for some of us, we're like, okay, fine, we've heard this already, but I want to sort of explain, I think, what it's really doing to Hillary Clinton and why she may win the election, but if she does, every single news story that you hear from now until election day about emails, even if she pulls it off, will be the beginnings of her downfall. And here's why. And I want to take you to a study that was done um, years ago by a group of Swiss researchers led by a man named Ernst Fair. Did I pronounce that right? Fair. So Ernst Fair from Switzerland conducted this incredible research. Listen to this. You're gonna, you're gonna love this. It's gonna. To me, when I saw this, I'm like, wow, incredible. So. Um, they basically created this game called the trust game. And here's what they did. Here's how the game goes. They put two strangers and they pair them up so they don't meet each other. And they put them in two separate rooms, okay? And the rooms are connected with a window. So you got stranger A in room one and stranger B in room two, okay? So they give stranger A, right? They give the, the, the person in the, the room one, in room A, room one, a $10 bill. And here's how the game goes. He could either take the $10 bills and leave. Right, and just walk out and say, thanks for letting me play in the game. Here's 10 bucks. Or he could give the $10 bill to the guy in room B, and once he gives them that money, 
then the examiner, the, the, the person in charge of the game, will quadruple it. Okay? So he could give them the $10 bill, and that $10 will become $40. So now the guy in room B has his $10 that was given to him, plus the $40 that he just made because Stranger A gave him 10 and they quadrupled it. So now Stranger B has 50 bucks. Now Stranger B can do what he wants. He can either keep the money or he can send half back to Stranger A. Okay, that's the that's the game. Now you're thinking to yourself, why would he give up his ten dollars? That's a good question. And what happened was they found is that most people, when they saw the the, the, the rules and and they're not speaking to each other, right? Most people when they saw the rules of the game said, Hey, wait a second, I got ten bucks. It's free ten bucks. If I hand it over, I'm sure the guy's gonna pick the option of it's gonna be fifty, he'll give me half. I'll make twenty five bucks, right? So most people when they had the option to either keep the ten or give it to the guy next to him, right? Assumed that they were going to get 25 back, they were going to split it, and most people actually gave the $10, okay? And most people actually were good about it, and they gave back half of that 10 to 50, right? And they gave back half to, to Stranger A. And no one was obligated. That That's how most sort of people played. But there were some people that had the 10 bucks. He handed it through the window to the guy. The guy now had 40 and the 10. He had 50 bucks in his hand. He got up and he walked out. Right, that or he just said no, I'm not doing it, and the game was over. Okay, so that was the that was the beginning of the games. But here's here's the nuance. Now watch how this gets crazy. After the second guy had his choice, okay, so the second guy's got fifty bucks and he can choose, split it with guy A, which would be the right thing to do, or keep it. So for those people that decided to keep it, the researchers gave the guy A or the guy that just got screwed, the guy A, he they gave him a choice. You can either just walk away or you could, with your own money, pay us and we will pull that money away from him on a two-to-one ratio. Meaning every dollar you give me, I'll take $2 off that Mr. B's $50 portion, right? So think about it. You gave the guy 10 bucks and you lost it. You made a bad move. Now you can pay him back. You could You can exact your revenge, if you will, and you can pay out of your own money. Now you're down money. Before, it was just money that was given to you. But now you're actually down cash, and you can pay. And you, if you pay the examiners, they will punish that guy who just didn't give you half of your share. And they found that most people, when they're given the opportunity to punish the guy who screwed them, did it. They paid money out of their own pocket in order to not let that guy walk away. They, they didn't have the money anyways. And then they lost the 10 bucks, and then they lost more money just to make sure that guy who could have given him half doesn't walk away with their, with their money. Okay? Now, here's where it gets even crazier. They put on these guys' heads this device called a PET, right? It's a PET scan. And what these PET scans do is they measure brain activity, right? So these guys are making a decision to pay the examiners money out of their own pocket in order to punish the their, their, their co-player that didn't give them the money. And they're noticing that once they're paying that money, once they're pulling the money out of their pocket, there is an increased activity in an area of the brain called the, stri- the striatum, striatum. And this is an area in the, in the brain that is the reward center. When you get a reward, this area lights up. So here you have a guy who trusted somebody else, got screwed, 
is taking money to exact revenge on somebody else and the area of the brain that gets lit up when he is exacting the revenge is the area that experiences reward. And this is one of the most fundamental studies with regards to understanding irrational behavior because it is irrational for a guy to lose 10 bucks and then to lose more money just to punish somebody else and then along the way of punishing somebody else pay the money as if you're getting a reward for something right as if you're buying an ice cream or as if you're you're winning an award of some sort because you're hurting or you're pulling out money of somebody that hurt you and what researchers found was that the ability to hurt somebody that you feel is justified in getting hurt, the ability to punish somebody that you feel violated what they call a social contract, actually gives human pleasure. That explains so much of why when we're watching a show, right? You ever watch a show, a scripted show, a TV show, and uh, uh, somebody, one spouse cheats on the other spouse, right? And in the show, you're just waiting for them to get caught. Right, You're waiting for something bad to happen to them. And when it does, you feel good. Why? Someone is getting hurt. And the answer is because as soon as there was a social contract, in this case marriage, somebody violated it. In our brains, there's, a, there's an imbalance. And we feel at our core that we, that balance, imbalance needs to be rebalanced. And there's a certain pleasure in rebalancing it. There's a certain pleasure in seeing so to speak, people that do wrong get punished, which is irrational, right? That's just more people getting hurt, right? If somebody hits you in the face, so to speak, or hits somebody that you know in the face, it's irrational to continue fighting. That's just more people getting hurt. Now he's hurt and they're hurt, but it doesn't matter because we feel this reward in our minds when we're able to see someone get punished. This, by the way, I think explains why people are so angry at Hillary Clinton. Because Donald Trump also has his, 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 his slate of problems, right? Donald Trump did things, to be honest, that me and, and you would be very uncomfortable doing. The way he treated people, the way he crammed people down. I mean, he has, if you could look at what he's done in his career, it's not like he's like this perfect guy who lived this incredibly life of integrity. And we're looking and going, wow, the white angel on the left and the black angel on the right. It's not how it works. Right. Donald Trump. But the difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is that Donald Trump wasn't an elected official. And in our minds, if you're an elected official, you serve the people. And for some reason, in our minds, we give a little bit more leeway to those that aren't elected, which is what Donald Trump is riding right now. But Hillary Clinton was an elected official basically her entire adult life or she was married to one. And when you hear things about money that she made when she was secretary of state or emails, what bothers us isn't just that these things happen, that Hillary made money. No one is bothered when Mark Cuban makes money. Nobody is bothered when you know someone walks in with Tony Robbins makes 300 grand a speech. Why do we care that Hillary Clinton makes 300 grand a speech? No one's bothered with it. It's because Hillary Clinton had a social contract to us, and that was you serve the people. You don't serve yourself. And every moment that we see that contract being violated, every moment in our minds we get this irrational desire, so to speak, for revenge, for her to fail, for her not to win. And this isn't just Republicans. 
if you look at what's going on even on the left, you will find lots of people saying, I don't trust her, I don't like her, but look what, what, look what my options are. And that way of thinking to a potential president is disastrous because no matter what, when a presidential candidate comes in, she's only or he's only coming in on one thing, on trust. When we come back, we're going to talk about how Hillary Clinton's decision to go after Donald Trump is actually going to come back to hurt her. She is missing the chance for a presidency. This is all coming when we come back. You're listening to Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. to the show talking about Hillary Clinton and how I think she's playing the wrong game. Speaking about the idea of getting pleasure in the pain of others when you feel that that pain is justified and why that is sort of a irrational but yet common way of thinking. We're not trying to change people. We're trying to understand them. And when you want to understand why so many people are going to vote for somebody that they wouldn't have voted for otherwise. Let's say, I know, and I know that Donald Trump won the, the Republican nomination. It's not like no one's voted for him before. But now you're in this whole world of independence and asking, hey, how come you guys are voting for him? And a lot of it is because I hate her, this desire to see her fail that so many people have when they're watching the debates or hearing her speak comes from the idea that, that we feel there's an imbalance. So here's the problem. Here's how it's solved, and here's why she's playing the wrong game. The only way that changes, research has shown, is when you reconnect with somebody. Right. If you say sorry, they did great research where they had people wait. You know, someone comes in for a test and then they made you wait like 20 minutes while you were on the phone and then they gave you the test. And for those people you said sorry to or I'm sorry or gave an explanation, they took the test at a certain level and they were fine. But if you gave no explanation, then they found that the people were upset because the way you overcome this d- desire to take revenge is by connecting to people, by showing that you're human. By showing that you make mistakes, by showing that you're like them. And once you create that commonality, right away we are so forgiving as a species, as a nation, as a person. Hillary Clinton's biggest mistake, and I'm, I'm, I, I think it's going to hit her big, is that as opposed, as opposed to trying to play these next few days into a world of being more human, of being more forthright, of recognizing that she's up against Donald Trump, and her goal, she already has someone to beat up on. All she needs to do is try to connect with people deeper, even to be a little bit more forthright in what she did and why it was a mistake. Instead, she is missing her chance of being human. Because once you become president, you stop being human. Once you become president, now everyone's looking at you. Everyone's, you look at Barack Obama. Barack Obama was the second coming. Do you remember Barack Obama? His acceptance speech was, was in Mile High Stadium. And then he walks into the presidency and everyone's killing him. Because when you become a president, it changes. Hillary's desire and decision to go after Donald Trump and turn this into a negative campaign plays right into that world of imbalance, of revenge. And what she's doing is win the election. Don't worry. I'll figure it out on the back end. Right? This is the type of thinking that's getting her into trouble. And if she wins this election on a negative campaign, she will not have allowed any of us to have 
have any connection to her besides this desire, if you will, to see that revenge, which will then turn around and kill her presidency. If this happens, I think we'll see it. When we come back, we're going to be talking about how Donald Trump's taxes is more important than we think. We're actually going to be speaking to one of the CEO of one of the biggest companies in New York, talking about the idea of status quo, big and small. This is all happening. Listening to Charlie Rari filling in for Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Hey, everybody! Welcome back to the show. Charlie Harari here, filling in for Buck Sexton. Happy Friday! Third hour begins now. Lot to talk about. We're going to be speaking a little bit about the tax code. I've got a great guest coming up in the bottom of the hour. Scott Reckler, CEO of RxR Realty, multi-billion-dollar company, is going to come on give us a little insights as to some of the ways that people are thinking about the economy and the elections. Uh, right now, I want to talk a little bit about this whole tax stuff. You know, this has sort of been the latest controversy. Uh, I want to give a shout out to Donna, who I saw had tweeted me this idea as well about the tax policy. And just to give a couple of shots out to some of the people that have been tweeting. Carol, thanks so much. Texas Patriot 210, thank you. Steven, thanks as well. Um, all these, I love you guys. I love Buck's audience. You guys are great. Appreciate the Always the warm wishes and the warm regards um, and the insights that you guys give as well. We were tweeting here at Charlie Harar. If you got any questions you want to tweet at me, you're welcome to do that. Um, this will also be on all the different places where they put stuff. So if you want to listen to this again later, um, great. It's an honor to be here with Buck. Now, talking about the latest thing right now. So the latest scandal that has hit the political presidential election, and I say latest because scandals are like, I think, in the old days, I think you had like two or three scandals per election. I think we're averaging two or three scandals before lunch, and we just got to like keep up. It's like we get tweeted every scandal. It's so quick to the point in which when you go through another Clinton email scandal, you just don't remember which one they're talking about. It's like unbelievable. Um, not to mention Donald Trump's issues. It's not like Donald Trump's got no scandals on his. And some of the stuff that I think would have knocked somebody out a few years ago are just we don't they don't even make it to like the the, the front page of uh, the homepage of a news site anymore. It's just so much. But the latest one that has everybody talking is this whole tax taxes thing. Donald Trump is rumored to have avoided paying federal income taxes for a I think that's right for a long time based on his losses. That he's taken, and so he doesn't want to release his tax returns because it's going to then open him up to this idea that he's not paying his fair share. And what he's been saying is, "You want me to be the president specifically because I know how to work the system." And I got to tell you, there's a part of me that totally gets that, right? There's a part of me that totally understands that in order to, to 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 fix what I think is a broken tax system. You know, you a lot of people that talk about how the rich don't pay their fair share of taxes. That's not true. That's just not true, right? The federal government derives most of its income from federal taxes, and 70% of the federal income tax that's paid is paid by the top 10% of Americans. So 
people are paying taxes. When Warren Buffett gets up and says that I pay less taxes than my than my assistant, I mean he's 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 being Warren Buffett about it, right? There are loopholes. There are ways that smart, sophisticated people get around paying certain taxes if they suffer losses, right? But it doesn't mean that everybody that has money isn't paying taxes. That's just not right. But what I think is potentially really exciting if Donald Trump would be president, knowing how many years he has spent avoiding taxes and now sort of seeing him on the other side as the tax enforcer or else the government can't make its money and pay its people, is this idea, this concept that the tax code is not really a code just to make money. It's really a code to get people elected, right? And I saw this great article recently about this, how our tax code is arguably the most complicated tax code in the world. I think we have the longest tax code in the world, right? There was a scholar named Sean Erlbach who counted the words. I don't know. Maybe I'm sure. I hope. I, I hope that he had some computer program. I'm sure he did. At over 3.8 million words. And that is just incredible. You need full legal departments. You need full. Le- there are probably tens of thousands of lawyers out there today who do nothing but explain the tax code. It is so complicated and convoluted that you requ- it requires you having enough money to pay a legal team to understand it, which is why so many sort of middle middle income Americans, so many regular people, so many average, great, hardworking individuals will just pay their taxes while the people that are a couple of have some little bit more money won't because they have more opportunity to hire people to get them through it. So the issue isn't the taxes, right? The issue is the code. And when you have a guy like Donald Trump saying, hey, listen, with a couple of lawyers, I figured out how to do these things. Let's cut it out. And this, by the way, hits an, a, a deeper issue that I want to talk to you guys about a little bit today and delve into why the tax code is such a huge failure, in my opinion, is this idea that convoluted or complicated means smarter. You ever feel this way? I, I used to get this a lot. I, I teach at a business school. So as a clinical professor, not a full professor, because I have a job, I'm not, I'm not a professor you know, for a living. I never got tenure. So I come in as sort of an adjunct, and I teach one class. And, and I remember there was one, it's a great department and a great group, and I love all the guys there. But there was one professor in particular um, who would just write these things that were so convoluted, you know, his works, his speech when he spoke. And I was like so intimidated by him. Right, like you never like read something that is so complicated and convoluted that you're like, wow, this must be brilliant, you know? Like you read like a journal or an article, and you're like, I can't even follow it at all. It is so complicated. Whoever wrote this must be a genius. And I remember talking to another professor in that university and asking him, how do I like you know navigate this? And he said something so interesting to me. He said that there are three levels, if you will, of intelligence. The first level is a simple way of looking at the world, right? A simple way of understanding something. The next level up is a complicated way, right? You see all the complications. He says, but the highest level is when you become simple again, right? You start off being simple because you don't get it all. Then you get to the next level, which is being complicated because you see all the different parts. 
And then you get to the highest level of being simple because you see that all the different parts really has very specific principles. And you can explain it with easier terms and words if you fully understood it. Right? And the term that at least a lot of law firms use, or I use when I was a lawyer, was can you explain it to a 10-year-old? Because if you can explain something complicated to a 10-year-old, you, can ex- you, uh, you fully understand it. And many times things are complicated because the person who has it hasn't thought about it enough or isn't smart, if you will, or hasn't spent enough time in the area to allow him to go past those big, huge words and those big, complicated ideas to simplifying, simplifying, simplifying so that the real message comes out in an elegant way. And if you look at some of the greatest thinkers, Albert Einstein, all the great, great thinkers, they presented solutions that were elegant. They were simple and brilliant. That's real greatness. That's what, it, what we strive for. When you look about, think about the tax code, what you got, honestly, is the system of government at its worst. Right? Because why is it so complicated for? How come we have a system that is so convoluted and complicated that it requires hundreds of lawyers to just decipher for us? And the answer is because that's how people get elected. Because when you support somebody and you run an industry, you know what happens after that person gets elected? You come and knock on their door and get a line in the tax code that helps you out. right? When you have a tax code that's so huge... Without actually delving into it to make it simpler, it just stays as this convoluted, complicated thing that we all regular people, me and you, just look back and go, oh, it must be for the really smart. It must be really, it, it must need to be this complicated, right? Because it's really important. Never dawning on us that it's complicated either because of corruption or because of a little political maneuvering or because there's nobody that actually sat through it and said, hey, our job is to make it something that everyone can understand. And that's a huge travesty, I think. Anytime you are living in a democracy, anytime you're involved in anything, and what's in front of you, a charter, a, a rule, something is complicated, complicated things or convoluted things lead to corruption and, and elitism. Because only a few people can decipher it. Right? That happens a lot. Right? Let me tell you what it really means. You can't figure this out on your own. You don't have the tools on your own. Only I can tell you what's in the thing that governs your life. Whenever you get near anything where you are governed by something and you don't know what that is and you need someone else, you're going to create a world where we have the haves and the have-nots. You're going to create a world where it pays. It's in the interest of the people that know to keep things complicated. It's not in the interest of the people that they paid lots of money or that are using this, so to speak, to either buy or get favors to turn around and say, this is ridiculous. This is way too long. We can cut this down in half and we can make the same, we can achieve the same results by making it something that somebody with an edu- a, a college-level education at the very least can pick up and understand so that the Americans who have to pay taxes can look at the, the, the actual code that is governing their money, where their dollars are going, what's happening to their hard-earned paychecks versus the world today where I can stick things anywhere I want. No one's paying attention. No one, no one's gonna, no one's gonna hold some congressman to task because in his district there's a guy who just got a huge subsidy because they just 
figure out a way to get some more money for his campaign and shoo him into a victory. And nestled in some page somewhere is this exception because of a lobbyist group. Me and you will never know that. It's just too big. It's just too complicated. It's just too difficult for us to be able to see that halfway through on every other page is just this incredible mass of some people taking favors. And this is, by the way, how it works in life. That we get so impressed by people that sound complicated, that sound intelligent, that are in charge of things, and we don't enough demand that they simplify it. We don't demand that somebody takes their level of expertise and brings it down to a level that we can understand so that we can make our own decisions. We don't trust ourselves enough to know how smart we each really are and how much common sense we have. I can tell you as a lawyer, I was a lawyer for, for many years, we used to write these documents that were so complicated and I'm like, what are we doing? But it's this world that we live in where we get paid. I'm not saying we do it to get paid. But it just it breeds this idea of I'm getting paid, so it's got to seem smart and seem complicated. And let me think of every scenario, and let me hand you a 30-page contract, which you're never going to read, but you'll pay me to read and explain to you, as opposed to actually sitting down and doing a deal with the key points and making it something that everybody can fully understand. And maybe, just maybe, I got to tell you, maybe, just maybe, this whole world that Donald Trump has been maneuvering around maybe when he gets in. I don't know, because sometimes these guys get in and then they become part of the establishment. Maybe when he gets in, he looks at it and goes, hey, let's be real. This is what we should be doing in the tax code. This is what we should be doing to the IRS. Which the IRS, you know, God bless them, has their own share of issues. But this is the whole idea of what it must mean to really have a government that's sort of back in the hands of the people. I think this is really what... It's more than just the amount of money that people are getting at. It's more than just the amount of money that people are paying. It's the sense that there are some people that think and that know that they're part of the elite. And they leave the rest of us out thinking that they know better. When you look at what's going on even today, and Donald Trump's ability to sort of live, and this is a very difficult decision we have to make, each and every one of us, I think. We have to decide if... Do we want in the White House the person who is a part and parcel of the system, who lives and breathes the system more than she knows how to breathe any other system? Or do we want somebody that actually is trying to beat the system? We're going to continue this conversation. We've got to go to a quick break. This is Charlie Harari listening to the Blaze Radio Network and the Buck Sexton Show. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show only on the Blaze Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Charlie Rari filling in for Buck. Hope everyone's doing well. Talking about the tax code and how the complicated matter of it is only benefiting the few people. Donna sent me a great tweet where she wrote, Would love to see requirement that all government officials must prepare their own taxes. 
it would get real simple real fast. I love that. <laughs> it would be amazing that every congressman and senator needs to prepare their own taxes. Oh my gosh, that'd be amazing. It would be like if that would happen, we'd be like on an index card. We'd be we'd, the tax code would shift so quickly. And I, I think the point that I'm trying to get at here, and a point that I think we need to walk away with is. And I've learned this from my own grandfather. My grandfather, God bless him, my grandfather came to this country. He was, my grandfather's a Holocaust survivor. So he lost his family. He lost everything in the war. I mean, everything. And his mom, his, everything. And he came on with basically to America with a shirt on his back. And he built a, you know, a business that supported my, my mom and, her, and, his, and his daughters. And he became something. And I'm sure everyone knows people that have come through so much. And he always taught me. Don't be so impressed. Like, you can figure things out. Like, it's, we're so easy to be impressed with people that have good titles or sound smart or in the right positions. And we, we're, we've, we've learned time and again that people that have big titles and big positions aren't that much better. Some people are. And the person you're going to meet on the, on the bottom head of this hour is one of those people who I respect immensely. Um, but you, we all know officials, right, that were like, really? This, these are the people in charge? And sometimes when you grow up in a system of, like, school, you know, the people that are in front of the room seem to be so much more well-educated than the people that are sitting in the room. And that doesn't necessarily make that's – not, that's not so true. Lots of times people that are in the room are much smarter. And we're so impressed. And it's nice to be impressed. It's good to be good to people. It's good to be impressed by people. I'm not saying that we shouldn't walk around and think good of people. I'm saying that we should never look back, look at things and say that we can't do it. We should never look and go, oh, there's only this person we should always fig- try to figure things out ourselves. Use people's knowledge. Join with people, right? You're not going to go to the doctor and tell him what you should do if he disagrees. But getting to a point where we demand people say things to us and explain things to us and where things especially govern our lives be made simple because at the end of the day, we can figure it out. And that's the faith that we have to have in our people. That's the faith we have to have in our nation. That's the faith we have to have in ourselves, that when you take people and you, you don't lie to them and you don't steal from them and you don't play them and you don't say you're going to serve them when at the end of the day you serve yourself and when you recognize that there's fairness and everyone should have a shot because it's the American way, at the end of the day the people will figure it out. I think that's to me the most important thing for us and especially as we walk into this next four years because I got to tell you these next four years are going to be a roller coaster no matter who wins in November and we each need to become more active this needs to almost be a mission and and to the point of Ari Lightstone earlier in the show if it's not the presidential ticket we need to show up and support our local guys our local women our congressmen, our senators, our local senators, our local congressmen, we need to recognize ourselves that we're smart enough to help shape the future of this country. This country isn't shaped by the few people that are in seats, that get to play around with the rules. This country is shaped by every single person that's a part of it. And the more we demand that people are, are held to task to make us a part of it, the more they will, the more that's the standard, the more we'll get involved. And by getting involved, what will happen is we'll be better for it because this is a nation of me and you and everybody around. This isn't a nation of the few. When we come back, we're going to talk to Scott Reckler, who's an incredible individual, someone who's really 
on his really with his two hands created incredible businesses about what the, the climate is going on in the future here. Um, this is all coming up when we come back. Stick with us for the bottom half of the last hour of the Buck Sexton Show. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck. You're listening to the Boys Radio Network. We'll be right back. Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Back to the show, Charlie R. here, filling in for Buck Sexton. Hope everyone's doing well. Just spoke about the tax code and how sometimes being a little convoluted isn't better for us, it's worse. we got to take the power back internally, individually, to really become the nation that we're meant to be. I'm joined in the studio now with an incredible individual. Scott Reckler is with me. Scott Reckler is the chairman and CEO of RxR Realty, a multi-billion dollar real estate company based here out of New York. Just to give you a sense of context, Donald Trump is being touted as this incredible businessman that everyone's going, wow, he's so great at real estate. Last year, the Commercial Observer's Power 100 list, it's a list that is published at the top 100 most powerful individuals in real estate and New York. And Donald Trump, in that list, Mr. Big Businessman, came in at number 13. The number one person on that list in 2014 is in the studio with me right now, Scott Reckless. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks, Charlie. So I'm looking at you. And I see what you've accomplished. I see how much did you building in terms of both the industry and, and your involvement in the community and what this company is doing and how your company has grown in so many ways. And you have lots of peers that you've seen grow companies. And I'm wondering, you know, you're looking at a presidential election where it's, you know, choosing who you don't want. How come we're not seeing more individuals from the private sector, people that have built businesses and built companies, jumping into government and saying, I want to get in, I want to change things, and getting more of a part of it? How come people like yourself and others with all this experience to actually change things are staying in the private sector? So, so I, I guess there's maybe two answers to that. And one, it relates a little bit to your, your opening comments about the tax code and the complexity, which is uh, the system itself is somewhat rigged. Um, when you think about the the whole primary system and the amount of people that vote when election day is, uh, you know, just take the primaries, right? You have less 10, 15% of the potential voters vote in the primaries. And the ones that vote are the ones that are really passionate on the, each side, the Democrat side and the Republican side and the far side of each of those parties. So you have this polarized outcome. So if you're more of a pragmatist, if you're more of a centrist, if you're more of someone that wants to to see progress, but you're not necessarily in the, um, so extreme on any ideology, you have a very difficult time to actually winning through the primary. And mm -hmm. the primary system vets out these people. So that's the the systematic systemic issue, I think, that faces this, that vets out the candidates that come at the end. And then I think the second thing um, is a lot of people in the private sector, like myself, realize that you can accomplish more if the goal is to make the communities that you live in better places, to make our country a better place, that you can accomplish more 
with a foot out of the public sector and a foot in on the private sector versus being all in on the public mm-hmm. sector. That's interesting, the idea that um, we're living in a time today whereas maybe in previous decades that wasn't the case, where impact today can come from anybody. I guess maybe it's like a little bit of like a flattening of, of potential impact where individuals that are outside the bureaucracy can make that difference. I think that, and again, that is, if you think about even today, the millennial generation, to me, they seem much more committed to social service and to trying to help people. Um, and that's not a government organization. That's not a government program that's driving it. That's a, a, a sort of way of life that has been passed down to them. And we, as, as, so as corporate leaders, and there's the group of corporate leaders that view that as, as leaders of companies, not only are you about uh, being a steward to your employees, to your shareholders, but you're also a steward to the public at large. And when you make a decision about um, something from a business standpoint, you need to consider, is it making our community a better place or is it going to make our community um, something that's more challenged later on? Do you find that, do you find that, um, you know, corporate CEOs seem to be in a, uh, an interesting pattern right now, almost like they're vilified. But if you, if in hearing you speak and knowing you and what you've done, in many ways, corporate CEOs with a certain level of uh, responsibility can be of the most important people in our country. So, do you find that um, the game, really, or the future, if you will, of our country, really is not as much as to these particular politicians, but whether or not we are grooming or supporting or holding accountable accountable corporate leaders? Yeah, I, listen, I think at the end of the day, um, you can't generalize across the board, right? I mean, if you have your subset of corporate leaders, like a Tim Cook as an example, who, you know, has a long-term vision for Apple and says, you know, if, you're, if you don't like what we're, I'm doing for the fact that I'm not only trying to create great products and great profits that are sustainable, but also do it in a responsible way for the community, then sell your shares. Mm-hmm. And he's in an enviable position because it's a company that can afford to do that. Um, and I think there's lots of of companies and, and CEOs that have that capacity, the public markets, just like the the public electric uh, area, has the same problem, which is that the public markets have shareholders that are very short-sighted, mm-hmm. that are focused on profits, and, and have analysts just like uh, polls for – uh, elected officials who tell them, you know, you're not going to do well in your profits. And so it drives a mentality of focusing on profits first versus giving back to community. And as a public company, as we are, it's easier to make a determination to spend more of your resources on making your community better places, more of your time on community service, um, and more of your time on focusing on the long-term good versus the short-term profit. Right. I, that's That's an incredible point. The idea that this constant focus on the short term. We were talking about this earlier in the show about uh, Cl- Hillary Clinton's, I think, his strategy of knocking Donald Trump is a short-term win but a long-term loss for her as the nation doesn't get to know her. And once she gets into the presidency, they're going to hold her accountable and the opportunity for her to actually come down to the people she's losing. But this idea that we are living in a world where we are constantly focused on the short term and it, the impact that it has on us in the long term is is a great one, and it does play both in politics and in, in the public markets. So is the solution then, I mean, because where do we find the future, right? Where I mean, this, this country was built on the backs of private individuals, and is that where we're going back to? Is that what life's going to look like, these 
public-private partnerships where private companies that aren't being tested based on quarters or poll numbers can actually take positions that may be a un- little unpopular but smarter for the future. I, th- I think that's where you want to try to go. I think, again, there's some institutional systemic issues of getting there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, um, when you look at where the political environment is, the people that control those systems like those systems because it empowers them. Mm. And the same thing on the, the public side of the equation, right? People who like the system of being able to control stock prices, make people think short term, it empowers them, they get enriched by it. Right? Mm-hmm. And so you, you need to change the rules of the game for the 21st century, right? We live in a, a, a time period now where there's headline news, where there's instantaneous information, and, there, and people are expected to respond instantaneously. Right. And you don't have the time to have the dialogue to actually get into something in greater depth, and there's not the attention span to get into that in greater depth. So you need to force the rules of the game to be one where people have to have longer conversations that aren't forced to make quick decisions. And if you, know, if you don't do that, then you know why would anyone in either party want to give up the primaries that are able to put their candidates that they want forward versus maybe people that are more uh, centered into the and, and more in line with the, the the country as a whole? Right. And that's. I mean, and then the question becomes, where does this change come from? Right. This sounds like a change. It doesn't come from the top. It's got to come from the ground, um, and the impact that it has locally. Right. And does it change in your in your view where you sit and. The, the recognition, which is a great point, which is, you know, you can't win a game that the rules are against you, right? you got to go in there, and it's got to be somewhat fair so that the, the, the side of, so to speak, right somehow prevails. But in a game where the people that are making the rules have the power, there's nothing incentivizing them to change the rules, which is why the tax code is the way it is, and to your point, the nomination process is the way it is. Why? And this election, by the way, may be the first point, part of this tipping point Mm -hmm. where some of this happens. Because why is Donald Trump where he is today? Why was Bernie Sanders where he is is today? Because the country is fed up with big business, big labor, big government, big military. They're fed up with big, big, big because that's what they feel is is in taking their – they're the incumbents, right? They're the people that are self-interested and they're – they believe they're just holding on to power and making decisions – for the benefit of sustaining that power versus the good for everyone. So mm-hmm. when someone has someone in a VA hospital and they're not getting taken care of, they say, okay, these people in power, they have bureaucracies that aren't even functioning. Right. And, and I can't even get them out of power. Right. And so that's why the, the message of, of, of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, the anti-establishment message resonates and uh, you know my view is who you know whoever wins this election i don't think that's going away this anti-establishment message will continue to resonate and it's incumbent upon people in the in the public to grab a hold of it and offer up ways to dismantle the tools that people use to sustain that power whether it's having for example um you know that there's term limits in elections as an example right right? right. there's lots of things you can do to do that yeah you know and i know that we got to go to a break soon do you think that the change that you talk about which is the change that i'm hoping for now that i hear you say it, and if you ever decide to run you know i'll I'll be your first vote um do you think that comes from the community you think that comes from a local you think that you think the change happens when a few people say hey listen i can't change the state or the government but you know what in this locality in this town this, this mayorship do you think that individuals need to start to move in terms of your direction of making it fair creating that longer-term vision from a 
a, a bottom-up political approach, knowing that there's no way you're going to, like to your point, just wake up and change the system. And I know Donald Trump is trying and Bernie Sanders tried. Do you think that's where individuals should spend their time? Listen, I think two things. One, individuals should vote. Let's start with that. Yes. Everyone should you know, take their right and use it effectively and vote. Two, I completely agree that individuals have to recognize they are empowered. And if they make a difference in their community, that community becomes a model that other communities will look at and start to follow. And we've seen that in, in the U.S. with things that have happened at the state level that have ultimately come up to the federal level. Mm-hmm. A lot of the changes the, of, of dynamics of, of policy have happened at different states and at, at other local communities. So you can make that change, and people have to be empowered and confident. And then the more that it happens, it's like pushing the flywheel. More and more people are doing it. The momentum will shift, and then I think it will become more wholesome in terms of structural shifts. All right. Well, Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your kind words. Appreciate your insights. And I think the vision you laid out for the future of this country. Thank you, Charlie. And that's uh, we're going to be right back. We're going to wrap up the show. Stick with us. This is Charlie Harari filling in for Buck Sexton, and you're listening to the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Is the Buck Sexton Show. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the show. Charlie Rari here. Hope everyone's doing well. Hope everybody's having an incredible Friday. Uh, happy Friday, everybody. Hope everyone down in uh, the path of Hurricane Matthew is safe and secure. I want to end the show with a great story. You know, I, every once in a while you see these stories. I saw this actually on The Blaze. There are some stories out there that just make you smile, make you love the American people. I want to share with one with you right now. Um, Christina Edwards. Christina Edwards is a single mom of two that was shopping in um, just in her town. And she stopped at the bank, Wells Fargo, to withdraw $60 before going food shopping. And you know she, she goes in and she sees that as she is um, taking out the money, um, she gets more 20s than she bargained for. And there's a malfunction in the ATM machine. And it literally started spilling out, you know, twenties, and she had three eighty that was given to her. Um, and she sits there and she's like, "Oh my gosh, you know, sixty bucks is a lot of money to her. Three eighty is is a windfall." So what does something like that do? So Christina thought to herself, and I'll just quote from her because it's great to hear it from her mouth. Someone deposited that money. It could have been their paycheck. She said, three eighty is a lot of money to me, and I was concerned about the person who was losing it. So she tracks down." goes back into the bank, figures out what goes on. It was a malfunction. She returns it to the bank. And that, to me, I think is really what it's all about, right? I think that's really what it's all about. It's about people like Christina. She gets another 320 bucks in her pocket. It's just wrong. Um, and she just gives it back. And Wells Fargo, unfortunately, <laughs> said thank you. And they didn't, I don't know why Wells Fargo didn't write her a check for 500 I mean, come on, Wells Fargo. But whatever. You know, you can't make banks do what they do. But either way, but I think that that sort of sets the point about the power of the person, the power of the person with the right attitude, right? The idea that I got to think of somebody else. And I would bet you someone like Christina, who's a single mom of two, I would bet you, I don't know her, I would bet you that her gratitude in life is higher than others, right? Because that's how you may do things like this. And I think if we recognize our potential power, even when Scott said it, you know, empowerment, 
the individual power, what each of us can do, what each of us can be, what each of us can become. When you look at the world from that perspective, you become more grateful. You become more uh, in, in charge, if you will. You become you, you look at the people that are setting the rules and demand more from them. And you demand more from ourselves, right? We demand, we, we take on more responsibility. We may not be able to change the elections, but we're going to vote and we're going to maybe change our communities. And if you look around and you realize just how much you individually can do, whatever that is that you're doing, but your contribution is a piece of the larger puzzle called our future. And we take that real seriously from returning a few dollars to a bank to setting up a new way of doing things, to demanding that the school board or whoever simplifies the rules, to voting for who you believe in, to uh, voting for your local local official, even if you're not necessarily so thrilled about the top of the ticket. These are things that make each and every one of us have better lives, have better countries, and it makes us the country that we are, right? What makes us us, in my opinion, is that we're a country of people not of government. We're individuals, all of us. When we come together, we become a nation. This is Charlie Rari. Thank you for the opportunity to listening. Thank you, Buck, for the chance to sit in your chair just for a few hours. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Have a great weekend. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.